subject we have this afternoon and I hope that uh, we should be able to be thrilled by uh, aspects of it at least because the uh, hope of Israel has been at the heart of the understanding of the gospel of the kingdom of God ever since the days of the apostles obscured over time by the influence of pagan mythologies and the church's tendency to absorb alien cultures into its mainstream theology we know how this great hope re-emerged brightly in the 19th century in the writings of Brother John Thomas. And the kingdom of God, past, present and future, became a key to the way in which Christadelphians opened up the Bible and its truth. Interestingly, the current issue of the Bible magazine features an article which was edited by Brother Thomas, which originally appeared in the Herald of the Kingdom in 1856. And it illustrates how vividly the vision our brethren had was part of their thinking. To them, the kingdom of God was a very real political entity, uh, making the glories of the British Empire pale by comparison. Uh, another such piece of writing, more extended, was, was something by Robert Roberts called The Final Consolation. Again, the writer incorporates into it his vision as to how it will be. It's interesting how he refers to electricity, electricity which, of course, had developed in the 19th century as a, as a new source of power and represented something rather wonderful and new, and so uh, Brother Roberts uh, talked about uh, electricity illuminating things uh, in Jerusalem. Later in the 20th century, Brother Henry Sully uh, used his architectural imagination to attempt a reconstruction of the Temple of Ezekiel's prophecy. Now, all of these people, uh, in the way in which they saw things, saw them to some extent within the framework of their own perception, their own times, their own understanding. And we shouldn't belittle the vision of these men. But all of them do illustrate our own tendency to envision the kingdom in terms that are limited by our experience. What does the scripture say? The scripture says, since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for thee. So, it's good that we should have a vision. We need a vision. We need a vision that is cautiously imaginative, I've put there. But it also needs to be a vision which is underpinned by scriptural values. Why cautious? Because, as with most uh, exposition of matters of prophecy, it's very easy for us to do a disservice to the uh, divine message by dogmatic assertion. Now, can I just be clear? I enjoy speculating about how the detail of prophecy will work, but I know that I'm limited by my own experience of life, rather like a fish in a goldfish bowl. The fish knows what's within its world, and if you were to talk to that fish about what lay outside its world, the world of computers and of machines and all the things that we're aware of, then its brain would have no capacity drawn on its own experience inside the goldfish bowl of, of ever uh, grasping what, what was being said. And so it is for us. We are very much limited by our own time and space, by our own uh, mortality, uh, by our own uh, uh, mental limitations. And so we have to be cautious. Uh, and I may be absolutely convinced in my own mind about the precise sequence of events at the return of Christ. But I have to show brotherly respect for those who are also knowledgeable, who are also sincere, are also committed to God's truth, but may have a different view of how it will be. 
So too with our vision of the kingdom. Of course we want it to be real. Of course we want to be excited by it. Of course we want to engage our friends by telling them what our hope is, and it is a real thing that's coming on the earth. It's a, it's a marvellous thing to be able to go out into the world and tell people about. But let us be cautious about the precise detail of the divine arrangements. Now, I've talked about caution, and I want to talk a little bit about values. Why do we need to think about values? Because the kingdom of God is really an expression of the values which lie right at the heart of God's character. Ultimately, we've heard, as we've heard already today, the earth is to be filled with his glory. And what's that glory about? That glory is about God's mercy. It's about his grace, his long-suffering, his goodness, his truth, his loving-kindness, the Hebrew word chesed, which, which is that idea of, of covenant love, his forgiveness, his holiness. So what is the most important aspect of the kingdom of God? Is it the precise arrangements for the mortal population uh, to access Jerusalem in order to observe the wonders of the temple and its rituals? Or is it to understand that the purpose of these arrangements is to educate people, to teach them how to live by those essential values that must underpin their lives? These are the essential values that will enable the fulfillment of those promises God made to Abraham that will result in blessings flowing to all nations. So in setting forth our vision of events, let's keep these principles in mind. Caution about the detail of the vision and a focus upon the values that underpin it. Well, let's just move swiftly through the opening events. Let's assume that the judgment of the responsible has taken place. By responsible, we mean those who know the revealed will of God. And, of course, we don't know how much people have to know before they're considered responsible to be called to the judgment. But we know that they will be summoned by the angels and have to give an account of themselves before the Lord Jesus Christ. Some are granted eternal life, and some are consigned to the prospect of eternal death. Maybe they're turned back into the very world that they have preferred, there to perish in the knowledge that they sold their birthright for a mess of pottage. Meanwhile, the Northern Confederacy has descended into the glorious land, and of course we read about that in Daniel 11, Ezekiel 38, passages that I think you'll be familiar with. Christ, with the immortal saints, emerges gloriously in the troubled city of Jerusalem, that burdensome stone, as Zechariah 12 puts it, uh, that has uh, drawn all nations into conflict. And Israel is now in a desperate state, the time of Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah. Just as 4,000 years ago, when their cry went up to God during their bitter experience under a new pharaoh, so now their cry is answered by the manifestation of Christ, the one who is greater than Moses, before whom they submit, looking on him whom they have pierced, repenting of their hard-hearted resistance to God's ways. We read all about that in, in Zechariah chapters 12 and 13. And it's clear that Christ confronts all those whose ambition is to destroy Israel. And the annihilation of the forces assembled near Jerusalem will be like it was in the day when the angel destroyed the Assyrian host in the day, days of Hezekiah. It's hard for us to kind of uh, envisage just how all that destruction will be. But I think it's sufficient for us just to accept that in some way God has got to remove those things which stand in the way of the establishment of his kingdom. We know that God is a very merciful God. He's not willing that any should perish. But those who go against his will in the end have to be removed in order that his will might prevail. 
So let us imagine that now the Lord Jesus Christ is enthroned in Jerusalem in the company of the saints, those who have been made immortal at the judgment. And there too is the repentant remnant of Israel under the leadership of the apostles. Remember how Jesus said they would sit on 12 tribes, uh, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. They will be allotted their tribal territories. Ezekiel chapter 47 tells us about that. And uh, they will rebuild their nation, no doubt uh, along the principles that are outlined in the law given to them in the days of Moses. Now, no doubt, too, they will be closely involved in the reconstruction of Jerusalem and the building of this great temple that Ezekiel describes in such detail that will serve as a house of prayer for all nations. It's worth us remembering that phrase from Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, a house of prayer for all nations. That's what it's about. It's about uh, enabling people uh, to come into a relationship with God, people from all nations, because the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are about blessings to flow to all nations. The rest of the world is called upon to submit. And... In a way, it's good for us to see that the repentance of Israel is a kind of a model. We may be troubled sometimes when we look at uh, the state of mind of Israel uh, and when we see attitudes that are displayed in the outworking of their policies which are hardly compatible with the things which are of God. And we think, well, why is God still working with Israel? And I think the answer is to just demonstrate the extent of God's grace. Here is a people that will have a heart that have a heart of stone. Yet Ezekiel says that heart of stone will be turned to a heart of flesh. And it will require that, that humbling process, that bitter experience where they come to realize they can no longer rely upon their own strength or the protection of America or whomsoever. Instead, they're forced to submit, as the brothers of Joseph were forced to submit to Joseph when eventually uh, they came and threw themselves at his feet in order to find life. And so the rest of the world that is now called upon to submit will realize that God is a God who is very merciful, that even this people who have behaved in this way, that have given such grief, that have caused such problems, can be forgiven when, like the prodigal son who came to his senses and returned back home and found that his father ran to meet him and embrace him, so too, uh, the people who God had called out, that uh, were descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, into whom he entered a covenant relationship in Sinai, that very same people uh, are brought back into a relationship with him. And so uh, it will take time for the nations to submit. Remember the wonderful words in, in Psalm 2, where God says that he set his, his king in Zion, in his holy mountain of Zion. And he, he says, kiss the son, lest he be angry in the way. So the nations are invited to submit, to actually accept the rule of Christ. And gradually, the kingdom extends into all the world. Now, we also know that the, the whole apostasy that, uh, that uh, Brother Trevor was talking about in his talk earlier on today will also be removed. And uh, some would take that as being at the same time as the Northern Confederacy, some as a, as a second phase. The important thing is that it is removed, and uh, Revelation chapter 17 makes quite clear that Babylon and all that is associated with Babylon is destroyed. And finally, uh, those who uh, are welcomed, uh, who welcome the Lord Jesus Christ, um, uh, responding to this this new leader who's, who's emerged and is offering a solution to all the problems which cause the sea and the waves to be roaring, which cause men's hearts to be failing for fear, which cause the unrest in many societies. That here is the answer uh, that has come, and, uh, and people will welcome uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, and, uh, and he will then uh, give to those who are his, his saints, responsibilities to be kings and priests and reign with him for a thousand years, as uh, Revelation chapter 20 puts it, for he must rule till he has put all enemies under his feet. We'll come back to this in a minute. Let's just 
kind of summarize the situation, because I think that sometimes we're not always clear about this. So once the kingdom is established, we have a picture of Christ and the saints who are immortal. We have the nation of Israel who will not be immortal at that point. They will be mortal because they will have to now be on probation as they lead their lives under the direction of Christ and the apostles uh, in the land as the head of the nations, as, as setting an example, as being uh, a continuing witness to God's ways, as, as showing the way in which the land can be reclaimed and developed. A, a model nation will be there as it was intended originally when God called them forth to be a kingdom of priests, that they could show the nations around the goodness and the wholesomeness of God's ways. So that will be in place, but they will be mortal. And then we have the, the rest of the nations who will, of course, be mortal. So sometimes, you know, in our prayers we, we say, I've heard it many times on Sunday evening, we're, we're longing for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ when there will be no more death. Well, of course, there will be no more death for those who are the saints uh, who are given immortality, but death will still be the experience of the mortal population. We had a reference to it in, in our reading from Isaiah uh, where it talked about a child dying 100 years old. So it tells us that the people will live longer as conditions improve, as the environment is, is better, uh, as health uh, gets uh, uh, better. All these things will cause people to live longer, but they will be mortal. And we need to remember that. And that situation is what the Bible talks about uh, when it refers to the thousand years, or the millennium as we call it. So how will life be different during this time? And I'm going to look at uh, seven characteristics of a highly effective kingdom. Uh, and the first of these is education. Education, education, education. Yes, it's got to be the case, hasn't it, that fundamental to changing people and to developing people and to creating a situation where... Uh, blessings can exist, is that people should be educated, educated in divine principles. Remember how Zechariah chapter 14 uh, describes people going up to Jerusalem? Uh, chapter 14, verse 6, if you like to look at the verse 16. It shall come to pass, Zechariah 14, verse 16, that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, again, in, in Isaiah, Isaiah speaks uh, of uh, God's laws going forth from Jerusalem. A uh, wonderful picture which we often quote in our uh, addresses. Um, People will say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us of his ways, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3. We will walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. When we look back to worship in ancient Israel, we realize that every element was designed to teach it wasn't that God had any pleasure in the death of animals, in the shedding of blood. Those things were there in order to teach people. There, when the blood was shed, you saw the consequence of sin. You were, you were acknowledging that God was right to say that sin will lead to death. And it brought home to you the need to repent, to turn away from sin. So it was there to educate. And so it was with all, all the detail of the tabernacle, its furniture, the clothing of the priests, the festivals, the feasts, all these things uh, were a focal point for teaching, teaching the importance of uh, divine living. So yes, there will be sacrifices in the age to come. And sometimes you get a bit hung up about that, particularly in these days of animal welfare and that sort of thing. Uh, and it's perhaps hard for us in our rather anaesthetized Western societies uh, to grasp what is perfectly normal in other communities in, in terms of, of, of animals. Um, but the point is not to focus on the kind of details as to how the sacrifices will be performed or to get into uh, descriptions as to, to how it will be precisely uh, in Jerusalem, but to see that, that through those processes, um, people throughout the world are going to be educated, made to realize that, that death is the consequence for sin. Yes, and of course the Lord Jesus Christ's death 
has been the means whereby that is achieved. And just as in the Old Testament those sacrifices look forward, so too these will be demonstrating to people who need to be taught uh, the principles which underline the, the uh, sacrifice of Christ. But behind it all are those values which the Lord Jesus Christ enunciated when he said that God, quoting from Hosea, desires uh, not sacrifice, uh, love, and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God more than burnt offering. So, so those things will be there, but through them, something is being taught. Uh, sacrifice, steadfast love, sacrificial love, giving of self, uh, turning away from sin, uh, burnt offerings about dedication, about committal to God's ways. And so we need to know what God's ways are in order to be uh, able to, to do what God wants us to do. Secondly, there will be a, a, a redeployment, I put it that way, of the Earth's resources so that instead of them being unproductive in the way we see so often, they will become productive, swords beaten into plowshares. When we consider the huge investment uh, in sophisticated weaponry today, little of which achieves anything but the loss of life and untold misery, misery how thankful we should be for such a prospect. Again, Zechariah 14, but other uh, passages too, tell us about the wealth of the nations round about Jerusalem being gathered together in great abundance. Psalm 72 talks about the rulers of Tarshish and Sheba bringing tribute and gifts. And uh, it's written almost as though in some way there's a sort of reward for those who are there in the kingdom, have all the world's wealth accumulating and so on and so forth. And it's not about that at all, of course. It's, it's rather like um, as, though, as though the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank, as it were, was, was going to be established in Jerusalem. Because the point of, of those resources being focused uh, within Jerusalem and, and within the people who are, um, who are leading from there is to, to enable, us, enable them to be redistributed, they to be used effectively uh, for the benefit of the rest of the world. So it's not about an accumulation of wealth as in the days of Solomon. It's about the greater than Solomon's control of these resources so that they can be used not for self-aggrandizement but for the benefit of all mankind. So how will life begin to be different for the mortal population as a result of these processes? Well, you know, when we look around the world today, we're aware of just how hard life is for many people. The picture on the screen is of uh, a slum just a few hundred yards away from the Christadelphian office in Bangalore in India. Uh, and there are millions and millions of people who live in, in conditions like this in various parts of the world, and many of you have seen them uh, on your travels. But here we're going to have a, a marvellous situation. Let's just turn to Isaiah chapter 11 and see the picture that's there. And here the Lord Jesus Christ is, is being described as, as judging the poor with righteousness, reproving with equity for the meek of the earth, smiting with, his, uh, with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, slaying the wicked. But with righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, faithfulness the girdle of his reins, the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard with the kid, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. So here's, here's a picture of people living now in a just society where, uh, where people are safe and secure. There may be major changes in, in nature as well, and it's a difficult issue, this. You know, will a, a lion have its whole... Uh, physique change so that it can actually eat straw like an ox? Is that meant to be taken literally? Or are these poetic uh, descriptions of the nations? The nations are often described in terms of beasts, aren't they, at peace together? Well, we don't need to get too hung up on it. We just simply need to recognize that it's talking about things being at peace, the people living together so that the poor 
uh, are not disadvantaged by the rich, so that people are able to live in safety, that in fact terrorism is no longer going to uh, exert itself in ways which blow apart the lives of innocent people. Uh, and that's a marvellous prospect, a marvellous message for us to bring uh, as we reach out to people in the world around us. It will also be a world in which, which health improves enormously. Again, the picture on the screen there is of a brother in Tanzania uh, with his makeshift crutches. He was run over by a bus and uh, his legs were crushed and damaged and no decent medical uh, attention to put the situation right. And so now he's incapacitated for the rest of his life. And there are millions of people again like this. Uh, I've seen heart-rending situations, particularly in Africa, with people who can't even stand up as he can stand up, crawling around on the floor. Nothing worse than if you're travelling on a crowded minibus and suddenly somebody's getting on and you realise they can't even stand up. They're crawling on uh, through the side door of the bus uh, and crouching on the floor because they're not able to stand up. And these are terrible situations which are still in our world, in our 21st century, with all its medical advances and skills. So how marvellous it will be to be in a world where these things are put right by the power of, of the Lord. And this is the marvellous thing, brothers and sisters, to be so excited about. You know, I'll come back to kings and priests in a minute, but, but essentially we would all like to be able to do something about those things. When, when we see it, even if we see it in the media and so forth, and we don't have direct access with it, we, we just wish we could somehow wave a magic wand, and there are no magic wands. But there will be the means we will have put at our disposal in the kingdom the resources which will enable us to deal with these situations. And that's one thing that I'm hugely looking forward to. So listen to these marvellous words from Isaiah chapter 35. Uh, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Isaiah 35 verses 5 and 6. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart. And the tongue of the dumb shall sing, for in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. And I like to think, uh, again, this is a, an area of speculation, isn't it, that, that more natural forms of healing will prevail. The whole thing is a kind of, it's a, it's a holistic package, isn't it, this? If you educate people in, in, the, in the things that they should eat, there's a lot in the media these days about what we eat and so on. Uh, so if you educate people, in, if they eat the right things, they eat natural products, um, if, if the whole of the environment is no longer polluted and poisoned by chemicals, all these things, then, then we're creating more healthy circumstances and there will be healthy means, natural means. Interesting, isn't it, that the, some of the very, very primitive peoples living, for example, in the Amazon rainforests um, have been able to, to live pretty healthy lives because they know how to access various roots and leaves and so on in order to to deal with any situation. As soon as, soon as, soon as uh, Westerners go in there, largely, of course, for, for purposes of logging and, and wrecking the forests and upsetting the environment in every way, as soon as that happens, they start to pick up uh, diseases that come from us and they haven't got the capacity to cope with them. But we can imagine in the kingdom that uh, where Ezekiel talks about the, the, uh, uh, the, the trees being used in Revelation 2, the leaves of the tree being used for the healing of the nation, that there will be natural means whereby people will be able to, uh, uh, to improve the, the, the health uh, and their condition. So as a result of all those things, people will be living longer. And the environment will, of course, improve enormously. Again, in Isaiah 35, it talks about the wilderness and the solitary place being glad, the desert blossoming, rejoicing and blossoming as the rose. Lovely pictures. Um, which demonstrate the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God being manifested in uh, natural surroundings. The picture on this screen is actually of some uh, wheat fields in Ethiopia. And of course, we think of Ethiopia as a terrible place of famine. Well, it is true that in about every five years, you can guarantee there'll be famine in certain areas of Ethiopia. But there are other parts of Ethiopia which are very fertile. But how wonderfully the scripture presents a picture of, ma of, of resources being managed. The situation in Ethiopia could be managed by the Ethiopians uh, in the way that Joseph managed the situation in Egypt. But it's easier just to 
throw up your hands and, and ask the international community to respond and put up all the pictures and the money comes in. Of course, a lot of that money doesn't go to the people for whom it's intended. It gets siphoned off. So it's a good way of, of fundraising. I'm, I know I'm being very cynical, but that's the reality of how it is in many uh, African countries. And so uh, it's not that the world is incapable of solving uh, many of the issues that confront it, is that it chooses not to. And many of those areas of the world which have become waste places, which are unfruitful, could be made fruitful. And one of the witnesses of the nation of Israel since it's established in 1948 is the way in which it was able to turn land that had been unproductive into land that was productive. And so in the kingdom age, the waste places will be places which now will give forth abundantly. And in a world which is now becoming increasingly conscious of water, there are uh, water shortages in many parts. Countries that have depended upon water for their productivity are now finding major water shortages as global warming begins to have its impact. So here the scriptures are assuring us that, that these things will be put right in the kingdom age. Um, as the world is managed, as trees are planted again. We know that the planting of trees and the management of trees actually affects the uh, environment and produces the kind of uh, rainfall which uh, must have existed in the Sahara one day. There's oil under the Sahara. There must have been trees there at one time, but it, the, the desertification has increased and spread uh, because of man cutting down the trees and gradually it turns to a waste place, then gradually the hot winds move over and go elsewhere and cause other places to dry up. And so gradually we wreck the environment, or we decide to build a hydroelectric scheme in the middle of Africa in order to generate power, in order actually to get a huge contract from an overseas company, much of which will involve a payoff to the government and their cronies uh, in order to then produce some electricity for the millions crowded into cities, which would increase the voters to get them, keep them in power, all those sorts of things. And meanwhile, the rural peoples living out in the area who lose their normal water sources because of this hydroelectric dam, just simply their lifestyle dries up. So how wonderful it will be in the kingdom age for all these things to be managed effectively and for the earth to be able to give forth abundantly in the way that God intends that it should happen. And then family life. Uh, well, that's a picture of a family in Kosovo, a country where uh, war has torn people's lives apart. That particular family, their house was destroyed by the Serbian army. They were driven off into the forest to live and then out into Albania as refugees. Now they're back in their home uh, trying to put their lives together in a place where there's 85% unemployment at the moment. But it's just a little reminder of how... Family life, even in the midst of these trials, is something people can hold on to. And interestingly, in our more less threatened Western societies, in, in our affluent world, uh, family life breaks apart because there isn't quite the need to hold together that these sorts of families have. But in the kingdom, uh, under the regime of Christ and the saints then we have in the scriptures surely a picture going right the way back to the earliest, uh, from, from the very beginning uh, of uh, Adam and Eve, God's purpose that man should live together in a relationship that is a stable relationship in which children can flourish and be taught uh, to learn to love God's word. And last of all, in my seven features of a highly effective kingdom, uh, there are other aspects of people's basic needs. People need work, don't they? Things to do. Let's just go to Isaiah 65 that we read by way of our introduction. And I wondered whether, and I'd be interested if anyone has any thoughts about this, in verse 17, the opening verse says, Behold, I create new heavens, plural, and a new earth. If there's any significance in that, is this saying, well, you've got... Uh, You've got the Lord Jesus Christ, you've got the saints, uh, you've got Israel taking a lead as the heavens, the new heavens, the, the new uh, leadership within the kingdom of God, uh, and then the new earth, the, the rest of the people. Is that what it's saying? I wonder. But what, what it goes on and talks about is people having work to do. 
They're going to be able to build houses, verse 21 says, and inhabit them, plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. Uh, They should not build another inhabit, they should not plant another eat. So they will long enjoy, verse 22, the work of their hands. So they'll have places to live in, this is telling us. Uh, They'll have food to eat. So people's basic needs will be met in an age when, as Amos says, the the, uh, plowman overtakes the reaper. Now, it's very tempting to speculate on a, on a whole range of, of other details which are even less uh, certain than the things that we've been talking about. I mean, will there be electronic communication? I think most people uh, sort of hanker for the time when there won't be any computers anymore uh, and we won't need to use the tech. Well, certainly I don't think the saints will need any of those things because we should just be able to communicate uh, instantly, you know, a, com- a computer is just simply a kind of man's effort to create a sort of a brain, isn't it? But we'll, with the immortal brain, surely we'll be able to kind of send messages to each other without even needing to, uh, to, to dial each other up, as it were. But as for the mortal population, well, I, I don't know. It's, it, it, these are interesting things to talk about over Sunday lunch. Uh, manufacturing, well, if they're going to be houses built um, and... Uh, then, then there's got to be construction, hasn't there? Um, people will need furniture in their houses. Uh, people will wear clothes. So are we going to be back into a very much a cottage society for people? Uh, will there be technology for agriculture, for construction, for transport? Or will we be back to oxen pulling ploughs like this man working with a plough high up uh, near the border of Costa Rica in Panama? Well, Robert Roberts uh, was certainly excited by the thought that electricity would be there. Uh, Will there be the need for that sort of power? If you have electricity, you've got to have generators to generate it. What about waste disposal? What about recreational activities? Will there be recreation? Will there be football? It's quite an important question if you're a a young man, uh, or maybe a young woman these days as well. uh, I, I mean, I, to be honest, I don't see why not. I mean, people, the idea of play is perfectly legitimate, isn't it? Children play, and as they grow up, we, we have different ways. We need recreation. That's recognized in the Scripture, that the Sabbath was a day of, of recreation, a recreation in the truest sense, recreating our spiritual values, uh, reminding ourselves of the things of God. Um, uh, but in any kind of, of balanced life, talking about the mortal population now, uh, then... People can't work all the time. People uh, can't be worshipping all the time. Uh, and indeed, it raises the issue as to what do we mean by worship. So, yeah, I think there will be opportunities for recreation. But when we, when we think of our societies, and if we think of... Uh, uh, if I think of Africa again, for example, then, then in an African rural setting, you see children playing quite happily with, with bits of makeshift toys that they've created and... And you see people sitting outside their homes talking together in, into the, as the sun sets. And uh, there's a real sense of kind of community and participation. People have sort of fun together and enjoyment. Now, you may have on the edge of that uh, people going off to the, to the kind of place where there's drink and, and, and getting themselves drunk. So that's a bad aspect of it. Um, but, but you don't have the kind of intrusive entertainment of our own communities. And one of the saddest things, again, in Africa is to see people crowding round uh, a cafe where there happens to be a television there, and they're watching usually some ghastly Rambo video from, from America or something. Uh, and the worst of Western culture is, is kind of finding its way into their communities. So clearly that kind of recreation is out. But simple... Uh, simple times where people play together, enjoy each other's company, how good I think that will be in the kingdom. And, the, and all these things are very interesting things to, for us to reflect on and, and, and to think about. I mentioned worship once or twice, and I think we, we need to be sort of clear about this, or as clear as we can be. Um, I remember actually as a teenager when people were talking about the marvels of, of throughout the ages of eternity praising God. And uh, I was thinking to myself, does this mean kind of being at the meeting uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, singing hymns or something like that? And as a kind of raw teenager, it didn't kind of have that appeal that perhaps it does to, to other people. Um, so we need to be clear, what's praise all about? Praise is surely about giving honor 
to God's name. Uh, in fact, the word Judah means praise, doesn't it? And so a, a true a Jew is truly one who gives praise to God. And it's not about talking to God. It's not about making a lot of noise. It's not about entertaining God with our musical items, valuable though those may be. It's about the way in which our hearts and minds are tuned into God and, and the way in which we are living our lives, which are our lives which are pleasing to God. And we ought to realize that, that listening to God is a part of praise. It's just like prayer, isn't it? Prayer. Prayer is not just us talking to God and telling him what we need. What, what, often we, we tell God what he already knows, of course. And in a way, we're sort of rehearsing it for, for our own benefit, for the benefit of others, and that's no bad thing. But we ought to be listening to God. Now, how do we listen to God? Well, I know some people say, well, because I listen to God when I'm in the garden and the birds are singing, and there is a kind of bit of that. But really, we listen to God by reading his word. And so let's remember that praise is about reading God's word and listening to what God has to say and not just battering him with our own uh, ideas, with our own, uh, our own sort of... Uh, uh, thoughts about the way should, we should be. And we, we seem to be having a lot more praise days these days, so perhaps that's what made, what made me think about it. And, and what I suggest is that, that those who organize praise days just try and think, am I ensuring that the focus on the word of God is there, that to recognize that this is praising God when I'm actually reading his word and letting that word influence my heart and my mind and opening myself up to him and thinking how can I make this word of God effective in my life. And we can imagine that uh, families in the age to come uh, will be taught and educated uh, by the saints in uh, using the word of God effectively in their family life. And how important that is. How important it is that we are always looking for opportunities to tell our children and our grandchildren about the things of the truth. You may say, oh, well, in the kingdom, uh, we shall see all these things clearly that we now see only darkly, and we're not able to do it terribly well now. Well, let's just do our best. I mean, do we imagine that in the kingdom, if we're made immortal, we'll be given some kind of a brain transplant? Some of us need it more than others. Uh, but... Uh, and obviously there will be dramatic changes, but I think we take with us into the kingdom things from our experience now. Why is Jesus a sympathetic high priest now? Because he's experienced what we've experienced. He's been tested in all points like as ourselves, yet without sin. So there must be something of his, his, his mortal experience which goes with him through into immortality, which makes him... Uh, a sympathetic high priest. And for us too, there'll be something that'll go through into immortality. And therefore we need to be now trying to anticipate the kingdom in the way in which we lead our lives. And so we should be people who are always seeking to learn from God's word, uh, to teach our families, uh, to reach out to others around us with that word. But remember the need for caution in our vision. Remember our focus on underlying Values For however it works on the ground, the important thing is this is a society where men and women are living under a regime where those divine principles of love, of goodness, and of truth will prevail. That is the essence of it. Sometimes we, we wonder how will people be changed so dramatically to accept the discipline, the education, the responsibility of God's laws. Well, uh, it seems to me there's a further lesson for us here, and it's about leadership. Good leadership makes all the difference. In Revelation 19, there's a, an echo of Psalm 2 describing the Lord Jesus Christ ruling with a rod of iron. I think some people may these days hanker after Tom Brown's school days, when not so very far from here, in rugby school in the 19th century, uh, the boys were kept in subjection by regular beatings with prefects given free reign to torment the younger pupils to maintain their privileged position. But, of course, that's not what the discipline of the kingdom age will be about. Uh, and we know today that good discipline within a company, within a school, within an, in any organization, within an ecclesia, 
comes from shared vision and values, the very things we've been speaking about today. Why are some companies places where people work willingly, where productivity is high, where they're prepared to give that extra discretionary effort uh, in order to make things work? It's because those companies are well-led. Why are there schools where children want to learn, uh, where they are cooperative and enjoy going to school? Because those schools have excellent leadership. So will it be in the kingdom. People will cooperate because they will respond to the finest leadership uh, that there has ever been. Uh, they will be happy and fulfilled because they're living in a society governed by those values of justice and mutual regard, which they'll learn about, which they'll understand. People, people kind of want it now, don't they? You, you see how people would respond to that. And their hopes are always dashed by politicians who promise and then fail to deliver. And imagine the satisfaction uh, of helping people to find fulfillment and joy in living. So what will be the role of the saints? Well, of course, they're going to be united with Christ. I think uh, in our opening prayer this morning, our, there was a reference to the multitudinous Christ. And, and so those who are at one uh, with God in Christ will share um, uh, the very qualities of, of, of Christ. Um, the Lord Jesus Christ said they'll be like the angels, neither marrying nor giving in marriage. So that sometimes troubles people. What's going to happen to my present relationships? Well, the relationships of the saints will surely transcend all of that. So it'll be like us all being together, working together in harmony uh, with the wisdom and direction of the Lord Jesus Christ in order to deliver this vision of the kingdom in which people will be educated and live by divine laws and rules. Um, what do you think it would be like to be a king and a priest? What kind of vision do you have of that, being a king and a priest? It doesn't always have too much appeal to everybody, does it, when you think of kingship and, and, uh, and priests as we know them today. But, of course, it's not about wielding power, getting our own way, walking around in, in special garments and officiating various functions. It's not about those things. It is about leadership, teaching people the, about right living, helping people to understand the right and wholesome ways of divine law. And surely this will appeal to us. When we find somebody who's interested in the truth and we're able to talk to them about the truth and, and to see how they respond to the scriptures, how satisfying and exciting it is. There's nothing better. Not so easy in our affluent societies now, but go out into developing countries and there's more often a thirst for knowledge and understanding of God's word. It's also the case when we look around, in every country there are terrible situations, abuse, injustice, grinding poverty because of unemployment, and so on. And we, we struggle, we struggle to try and uh, come up with, with any kind of real help in those situations. Uh, all we can offer is, is, is palliatives in practical terms, but we can offer, of course, the word of God and this real hope of a society which will be based upon just and fair principles. How satisfying it will be to be able to offer real solutions, to communicate to the mortal population a vision of how life must be lived in a way that expresses divine values. And so we must ask ourselves, to what extent are we living that kind of life now? Are we seeking to be good role mod models now? Are we leading others in God's ways? Are we seeking to educate our children, our brethren and sisters, our neighbours? Are we reaching out to tell people about the things of the kingdom of God? Of course, human nature remains human nature. If you turn to Revelation chapter 20, you remember how the picture of the saints ruling with the Lord Jesus Christ as kings and priests for a thousand years moves on and we have a description in verse uh, 7 onwards when the thousand years are expired and Satan so, so sin that has been restrained during this period eventually finds its way to the surface again human nature likes to push the boundaries happened in the garden of Eden happens in every situation just as Korah, Dathan and Abiram decided they weren't satisfied with the leadership of Moses and Aaron. So 
in the kingdom. There will be those who are not content to keep their first estate, to use the phrase from Jude, uh, and want to, uh, want to try, and, try and seize power themselves. And Revelation chapter 20 tells us how they are uh, dealt with very decisively uh, and uh, their rebellion uh, comes to an end. And then more or less the same time as this, verse 11 onwards in Revelation chapter 20, we have this second resurrection and second judgment. And of course this is for those who have lived as mortals during the thousand years and have died. And so for them it's the opportunity at the end of the millennium uh, to be raised either to immortality because of their faithfulness or uh, to be consigned to eternal death if they've not been faithful. And finally we come into chapter 21 where the new heaven and new earth takes on a, another phase, where the holy city, New Jerusalem, comes down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And finally, that very uh, essence of God's purpose, that he should dwell in the midst of his people, is fulfilled. Uh, and the outcome of that is there's no more sorrow, pain, and death. The Apostle Paul may well have been referring to this when in 2 Corinthians 12 he talks about the vision of the third heaven that he held, that he had. And again, sometimes you think, well, you know, if it's all the same, won't it be kind of a bit boring? But it won't be all the same. It'll be a life of endless variety. Just think of the huge variety of the, of the earth's um, flora and fauna, for example, to be enjoyed. Just, just, just think of the, the huge variety of people um, it doesn't depend upon people being sinners for them to be likable. Uh, and uh, you, can, you can really enjoy the company. You're re- when you're with really wholesome, lovely people, you enjoy their company. And anything that gets in the way of that spoils it. So there's endless variety in human relationships, in the environment around us, in the uh, creative potential within us all. If God is a creator and we're sharing his nature, then surely there'll be wonderful creative opportunities. So I, I see all this as being not something that's going to be sort of uh, uh, endlessly boring, but in fact endlessly fulfilling and interesting and, and, and wonderful. And so the millennium is, is the sort of stage before this, um, where if we're given the blessings of being made immortal, then we shall be able to uh, share with the Lord Jesus Christ in the work of preparing for this wonderful scene that comes at the end, when finally uh, God's purpose is fulfilled. For God wants to make man in his image. Uh, And that will happen when the Lord Jesus Christ has delivered up the kingdom to his Father, that God may be all in all. And while we can hardly imagine all the detail of this, we can certainly see how those values which are at the heart of God's glory will create a world where there is endless delight and pleasure, where people can live together in peace and fulfillment, where indeed the earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea.